Tonight on Farage, we talk about climate change, going green. Do you know how much it's costing you and will cost you in the years to come? Time we had a debate on that. From America, we have Ted Cruz, senator from Texas. We assess how's Donald Trump doing? How is President Biden doing? And Big Phil Campion, ex-SAS trooper, tells us why the army is still a great career for many young men and women. Climate change, it's everywhere. Everyone's talking about it. In fact, there have been so many big weather events around the world in the last couple of weeks, and every single one of them is put down to climate change. There's no debate, there's no other point of view put. It is given to us as a matter of fact. And today, from the Met Office, we were told that shortly we must expect summers where the temperature regularly gets up to 40 degrees centigrade and where we're going to get a lot more heavy rain and a lot more flooding, the likes of which we've seen in parts of the country over the last few weeks. All of these predictions, all of these projections are put to you as fact. And the government seems to be absolutely hell-bent on pursuing a zero CO2 emission, zero net CO2 emission target in a few years' time. Much talk over the last months about electric cars, about changing our boilers and heaters at home. Indeed, the Prime Minister's spokesman on climate change, Allegra Strassen, um, has said quite a lot in the last couple of days. She even told us that when we put our dishes in the dishwasher, we shouldn't rinse them first. No, she really did say that. We shouldn't rinse them first because then we'll use less water and perhaps somehow save the planet. Well, if we do follow Allegra's advice on that, it'll be very, very good news for Pimlico plumbers who were in with us last week because our dishwashers will get blocked up on a regular basis, but not even content with that. She did suggest that one way of combating climate change was to join the Green Party. No, she really did honestly say that. And I begin to think that number 10 has now been completely overtaken by a certain type of green. I'd call them Richmond Greens. They live in £2 million houses. They're not really bothered about the fact that domestic bills are going up to pay subsidies to produce renewable energy. And we even had the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, um, under whose tenure church attendances fell, telling us that Greta Thunberg was like a biblical prophet. So there is only one side to this argument. There is only one debate. Nothing else is allowed. And I've been really surprised over the years. Yes, I know there are many more scientists who believe that CO2 emissions are an important contribution to the earth warming. And I'm not for one moment saying that they're wrong. But equally, there are those with different opinions, and yet we never hear from them. Why? I was really quite shocked to learn the other week that Ofcom, the regulator that regulates what goes out on radio, on television, through our postal services, Ofcom who are there to make sure that with all big debates about current affairs, that both sides of an argument get a hearing, that there is no completely undue bias in one direction or another, that under Ofcom rules written in to the legislation that was put in place by the Blair government, global warming, climate change, is considered to be a settled issue. And that's why broadcasters don't need to give both sides of an opinion. Well, tonight, we're going to have a debate, not about whether CO2 is leading to global warming directly. What we're going to talk about is the cost of this to ordinary people, something that I don't think gets discussed enough. And I'm asking the question of you, our viewers, 
Are you prepared to pay the cost of going green? Let me know what you think. GBviews at gbnews.uk. And of course, there are many that will say we can't afford not to pay the cost because if we don't do the right things, the results could be catastrophic. But I'm focusing more than anything on the cost of it today. Now, joining me to kick off this debate is Bob Ward, Policy Director at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change at the London School of Economics. Bob, good evening and thank you for joining us. Good evening, Nigel. So the argument I'm making here is not about whether CO2 leads to the earth warming or not. The argument I'm making here is that the hidden costs of this to ordinary people are quite substantial. And we've not really, I don't think, had a proper debate about this. I think it's certainly true that most people are not aware of the full costs. But in any discussion about climate change, it's quite right that you talk about both the costs and the benefits. And if you only talk about one half, you're presenting only half the story. So let's just talk about the benefits just briefly to begin with, because it's been in the news today. We are seeing the increasing impacts of climate change. It's already causing harms to lives and livelihoods in the UK. It's real damage being caused by flooding. It's real lives that are being lost through heat waves. And so the objective of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions effectively to zero by the middle of the century is designed to stop those impacts and those costs accumulating and becoming worse and worse. Because as the scientists have pointed out, as long as you keep raising greenhouse gas levels in the atmosphere, the impacts grow, the damages get worse, the costs go up. On the other side, the costs of reducing emissions are going to be high, but all the economic analysis show that in the long run, the benefits will outweigh the costs. Are these the same scientists who 40 years ago were telling us that man-made activity, its impact on the environment would lead to a new ice age? Are they the same scientists? Well, that's a, a myth. There are some scientists who speculated at that time not a myth. Because it's, it, no, 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 it's not a myth. Down. It's not a myth. I saw it's it. It's a myth that it was most scientists, Nigel. It, right. it appeared on the front on the front of one magazine, and that's where this story has come from. You can go and have a look at the evidence if you like. But what was happening at that time is global temperatures were slightly going down. Mm. We we're not quite sure why, but it seems to have been linked with the increase in air pollution that increased um, associated with the growth of factories and industrialization. But since the 1980s, temperature has been going up, right? Nobody denies that. No. The only reasonable explanation is the rise in carbon dioxide levels and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. You cannot find a credible alternative explanation. But we have, of course, over the thousands of years that we've been around and, and documented this thing and, and, and going back through, you know, just sort of studies of geology. I mean, there have been massive swings, haven't there, in climate, in temperatures, uh, huge changes um, in our environment. You, you know, I mean, you know, we hear that, you know, the Romans were managing to produce wine up by Hadrian's Wall, that Greenland was green. So we have seen warmer periods before and they had nothing to do with man's impact, did they? Yeah, so I'm a geologist, Nigel, so this is often raised with me. Mm. The fact is that the temperature has been relatively stable for the last 10,000 years during which civilization has been built. It's been relatively stable since the end of the last ice age. 
we are now at carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere that we haven't seen for 3 million years. The last time we saw it was in the Pliocene epoch, which was uh, a time when uh, the global temperature was about three degrees warmer than it is uh, than it was during pre-industrial times. The polar ice caps were much smaller and the global sea level was 10 to 20 meters higher than today. You cannot tell me with a great confidence that we could see such a fundamental transformation in the climate and we would just shrug it off. We're talking about unprecedented changes that have never happened in history and we don't even have experience of them as a, as a species because modern humans have only been around for about 200,000 yeah. years. Yeah, so is the argument, in summation, is the argument, if there is a cost to doing this and if that cost falls on taxpayers, on their electricity bills, that actually it's a cost that we have to pay? Costs are already falling on people through increased insurance premiums. The alternative of preventing the impacts, which will generate jobs and growth, remember, as well, these are real jobs that will be created, is a price worth paying, and it's one that we will benefit from and our children and our grandchildren. OK, thank you very much indeed. Well, that was Bob Ward putting the case that this is happening and that actually we can't afford not to do anything. Well, let's hear a different perspective on this. I'm joined by Dr. Benny Pizer, Director of the Global Warming Policy Foundation. Benny, good evening and welcome to GB News. Good evening, Nigel. I don't want to get into particularly a debate about CO2 uh, and rising temperatures. What I really wanted to try and focus on was costs, because nobody ever gives me any hard numbers. Stories today that over the course of the next few years, household bills could rise by as much as £400 to pay for effectively subsidies to, green, to, to the production of green energy. The question, Benny, that I've got is how much money are people paying in tax effectively for these subsidies today? Um, most people are paying that amount of money not via their tax. They are paying it as part of their energy bills. So we are currently, the average household currently pays around £400 per year to subsidise green energy investors, people who build you know, wind farms, solar farms and so on. Roughly 400 and that is only the direct cost. Um, this is going to double and treble in the next few years, of course, if net zero is going to be implemented. But currently, it's about £400 per year, roughly a, a third of the average uh, energy bill. And But these are only the direct costs. You have to remember there are also the so, indirect sorry, costs. Betty, I want to stop you there. I want to stop you there. You're suggesting that on your numbers, people paying their household bills are paying, you're saying, 30% more than it would be without green energy subsidies? Oh, it's about 40% more. It's about 30% of the, of the average bill, but, wow. but the costs have gone up by about 40%, just the policy costs, yeah. And it's set to increase even more? Oh, this is just peanuts. Uh, this is just the easy bit. Now we're talking about the complete decarbonisation of the economy. Uh, you've heard the 
controversy about the ban on gas boilers and the heat yeah. pumps yeah. That, uh, would cost 10,000. Now, this has become so toxic that Boris was forced to delay this and kick it in the long grass, say, oh, no, we, you know, let's do this when I'm a pensioner in 2040 or, or even after that. And this is what we're currently facing. Every policy the government is considering will have astronomical costs, will become toxic and will turn the public against them. Just look what happened in France. Look what happened in Switzerland. They had a referendum on this yeah. very issue. The majority of Swiss said no. Yes. We have reached the level which we can afford not more. And this is the, one of the wealthiest part of the world. Yeah, no, everyone forgets that the Gilets Jaunes movement in France uh, was all about green taxes. It was about the cost of diesel and petrol going up. But Benny Pizer, clearly you are a denier and you just don't give a damn about the well-being of the world and our future. No, that's not true. Um, the reality is... But that's what people that say. That's what people say, Benny, isn't it? Because, because there is yeah, wall-to-wall -wall consensus, we're told. There's wall-to-wall -to -wall consensus that we're headed towards potential disaster. Yeah. Well, that is not the con consensus of climate science. If you look at the IPCC reports over the last 30 years, they have all been very consistent and they are saying that we are living in a warming world. Uh, CO2 is increasing and so is are the temperatures. We might face a warming of 1.5 degree by uh, 2100 yeah. or 4.5. But no one knows and no one can say for certain whether the warming in the next 100 years will be at the low end or at the high end or medium. We don't know that. What we do know is that we are doing very well to cope with the extreme weather events. The number of people dying from weather events has actually dropped by more than 90%. So we're okay. Since, but since when? Since when? 90% since when? Since about uh, 100 years ago. Okay. Um, so if you, if you compare how many people, just think about how many people died from, um, you know, heat, uh, waves, uh, cold snaps. We live in much better housing. We are much better prepared to deal with heat waves. Ten times more people incidentally die from cold than they die from heat. But that's not the point. The point is, if you think about the 70 billion we are spending on renewables, yeah. compare that to the little that we spend on making our communities more resilient to heat waves, to flooding. And, you know, I'm, I feel a bit sorry for people who think that if we decarbonize the economy, we will not have any floods anymore. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no of, of course, of course. Benny Pizer, thank you for joining us. Thank you for putting those views. Uh, and, and I thought that was fascinating. So there you saw here on GB News, two very different arguments being made. And it's important that you hear both of those arguments. Benny Pizer is suggesting that already on your household bill, over a third of that bill is going straight into subsidy. And that subsidy is going to rich landowners who've got wind turbines on their land, or it's going to big companies who are building offshore wind 
turbines. And if anybody wants to come on next week and challenge that figure and challenge those numbers, I'll very, very happily have that debate with you. Now, the pandemic. We've talked about it over the last couple of weeks that I've been here with you. Uh, and it seems like in some ways it's almost getting worse because the number of self-isolation alerts sent by the NHS COVID-19 app in England and Wales has risen to nearly 700,000 in the week up to July the 21st. And this figure you know, represents just the most massive increase, another 70,000 higher than the week before. Something like a million people currently isolating at home, 11% rise week on week. So is it time the government rethought this? After all, they've rethought the flights because from Monday, people can fly in from most parts of the EU, from the USA, if they've got a jab certificate um, and not have to quarantine. And yet we've got a million people isolating within our own country. Joining me is Professor George Lomonosov, virologist at the John Inn Centre. Professor, uh, um, we're told that on the 16th of August this will end and that people who've been vaccinated will not need to isolate if they've been in reasonably close contact with somebody that's tested positive. Is, would it make sense for the government to bring this forward or is the pandemic, as we're calling it, actually good science? Oh, good evening. Good evening. It's a very interesting situation that we're in um, because, on the one hand, as you correctly say, that you know the number of people being pinged has increased, but also the number of infections listed has gone down. Now, I think the two may be connected, in that because, of course, the idea of being pinged is to try and prevent the spread of infection, and so one could make the uh, the point that actually it, it's doing what it was supposed to do and has actually brought the rates of, of infection down. Ah. So, um, yeah. and, and so what you could hope to see is that as those rates of infections go down, the number of contacts should go down as well. So that might sort of resolve itself naturally through it doing what it's um, okay. supposed to do. OK, well, that's, I mean, you know, that is a positive argument as to why it might be helping. But can you see where people are confused? Because we have Freedom oh, Day. Uh, we, we have the airports opening up. We're told from the 16th of August we won't need to do this, and yet for the next three weeks we will. I mean, we're not getting very clear messaging here, are we? Yeah, I, th I think the issue really comes down to how you respond to the ping. So one way of you know trying to, to mitigate spreading the infection is to self-isolate, and that's as yep. old as the hills as a way of uh, preventing infection spreading. Um, but there are other means, and of course that's testing. And I suspect one of the reasons that, you know, for not bringing it forward is that obviously if you're going to have this kind of testing regime in response to being pinged rather than isolation, you obviously have to increase the capacity to be able to do it. Because I think the idea is that you won't have to isolate, but you will have to take some tests. I mean, and we're talking here the PCR tests, which yeah. uh, you can't. So, so would the lateral flow test not suffice for this? Now, I think the idea is they're not as accurate. They, they, they're a guide more than, um, hmm. uh, you know, sort of definitive. So I think the idea is to, to wait to the 16th of August. I'm not entirely sure because I'm not privy to the conversations. So that there will be a, a sufficient testing capacity that you okay. could say, OK, you've been pinged, so you can now go and have a test. And if that's negative, you don't have to self-isolate. So really, the story is we're going to have to live with this until at least the 16th of August, Yeah. I think that's the, that's the basics. 
Yeah, I think it is. Thank you very much. Well, at least we heard an argument for pings there, uh, which I certainly wouldn't have been able to put to you. In a moment, we're going to be looking at what's happening in America. President Joe Biden, we don't hear much from him. His popularity is falling very, very quickly. I'll be speaking to Senator Ted Cruz from Texas next. We're talking green taxes. We're talking, can you afford to pay the cost? Do you realise just how much you're spending? I've asked you for your views and they're coming in. And Trev on Twitter says, come on, Nigel, I know you need to play a bit of devil's advocate, but of course there have been massive changes in the distant past, most resulting in massive extinctions too. The current one, combined with our prolific rates of pollution, will trump anything that has gone before. Well, maybe it will and maybe it won't. We don't know. They are projections. Barry says, I'm a pensioner. I cannot afford to have my gas boiler taken out and us to go all over to an electric house. I cannot afford one of, the new, one of their new cars. We don't have enough power in the national grid to charge all of these cars. We'd need at least three more nuclear power stations. We would, but hopefully not ones that are built by the Chinese, is my point. And we'll debate that next week, by the way. JC on Twitter says, the UK's ambition of reducing emissions to zero is actually pointless when China are opening new coal-fired power stations every single week. It's like turning up... Uh, no, fine. Look, let's move on. Let's move on. American politics. We used to, when Donald Trump was president, never a day went by when American politics, American current affairs was in the news. It was in the news globally every single day. And Trump was there and everybody was obsessed with his latest tweet or whatever it may be. We had the election. Uh, we had the events of the 6th of January. Joe Biden coming into the White House. And now we hear pretty much nothing. And... I was uh, just having a look earlier this week and Rasmussen are a big polling firm in the USA and they report that a very large majority, growing majority of voters are now unhappy with Biden's performance not even 200 days into his term. And, and the figures are, you know, the net approval ratings are falling very, very quickly. 46% approve of his job, but 52% you know, are making it pretty clear they disapprove. And quite a few of those disapprove very, very strongly. So 42% strongly disapprove of the president's first six months. That really is a big, big number. So what's going wrong for President Biden? What's happening in American politics? Well, joining me now is Senator Ted Cruz, Republican senator for Texas. Uh, Ted, thank you very much for joining us here on GB News. Nigel, great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Now, the first thing I must ask you is this. The, as you know, it's been pretty much impossible to cross the pond, uh, you know, whether it's for business, whether it's to meet relations, whether it's to go on holiday. Um, London streets, by the way, Ted, are deserted because they'd normally be full of American tourists at this time of the year. Uh, but I'm sure that Disneyland uh, is missing out on all the British families that love to go there. But we have decided as a country that from next Monday morning, American citizens who want to come to the UK, provided they can prove that they've been vaccinated and tested negative, can come into the UK, there's no need to quarantine. So it means already the big airlines, whether it's Virgin Atlantic or American, 
you know, they have, they, they, they have reported, you know, very, very large numbers of people booking flights. And a lot of it will be business. And goodness me, don't we just need to get those businesses working together? But here's the point, Ted Cruz. You know, uh, you guys, our American cousins, have not reciprocated in any way at all. And if I wanted to come and see you, I would need to quarantine for a fortnight in a Caribbean island or somewhere uh, that the Americans thought was safe. Isn't it about time the Americans stepped up to the plate and matched our offer? So uh, I agree. Uh, I, I think it is. I think it is a good thing to see Americans going back to the UK, going back to London. London is a, a wonderful, beautiful city. Uh, and I think it's a good thing to, to, to see the British people coming back to the United States. We have been friends uh, for a couple of centuries now, and, and it is an incredibly important transatlantic alliance, friendship. Uh, and, and it was one thing at the height of the pandemic when it was spreading and we didn't have a vaccine, we didn't know how to treat it. It was one thing then to, to, to halt traffic and, and yeah. try to beat it in our respective countries. But now with the availability of the vaccine, I, I, I think it, it is high past time we get back to business, back to our lives, get our kids back in school and, and, and resume uh, living our lives. Good. Well, I do hope that uh, I do hope that American politicians from both parties uh, put a little bit of pressure on the U.S. administration to get this done, because it's uh, it really is important. Now, Ted, I said in the introduction that when Donald Trump was president um, and, you know, the dramatic press conferences and the 5.30 a.m. tweets and all the rest of it. Um, I mean, you know, the whole world talked about America, American politics, American policies. Um, and we've got this guy Biden in the White House, and now we don't hear anything that is going on uh, in the U.S. And what kind of? And I was out there myself for a couple of months earlier this year, so I could see some of the problems building. Um, I went down to the border in uh, your neighbouring state of Arizona yep. and was quite shocked by the scale of what I was seeing. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm also seeing that the economic forecasts. Uh, for growth in the USA are very much at the negative end of expectations. But, and I know you're a Republican, but I want to ask you, you know, looking at those polls that I showed the audience a few minutes ago, Biden's approval rating is, has literally fallen off a cliff over the course yep. of the last, really, just the last few weeks. What is going on? Why is he losing credibility as rapidly as this, having not even been in the White House for 200 days? Well, I, I think there's a disconnect between what Biden campaigned on last year and what his administration is actually doing in office this year. Uh, last year, Biden campaigned as a, a as a centrist, as a reasonable moderate uh, who was going to uh, avoid the drama, of the Trump presidency. I think yeah. if you look back at the last four years on the policy front, I think we won incredible victories over the four years of the Trump presidency. And I worked hand in hand with President Trump during that entire time. Uh, but there's no doubt there was a lot of drama as well. There was the early morning tweets and and, and <laughs> it, it was never boring. And, and I think Biden uh, capitalized on that by promising to be boring. And, and, and I think for at least some voters, boring was attractive. But what's happened is he hasn't governed remotely like he campaigned. As, as when, when Biden came into office, he effectively handed the reins of the Democratic Party agenda 
over to the extreme left. And so the people really driving the agenda right now are, are Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and AOC, and, and it's the extremes in the Democratic Party. So you mentioned our southern border. We have an absolute crisis on our southern border. We're on pace for over two million people to cross illegally into the United States this year. The worst illegal immigration in 21 years. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris caused that by policy decisions they made the very first week. You look at spending. They're already spending trillions of dollars. They're on pace to spend six to seven trillion dollars this year. And we're seeing inflation going up across the country. They're proposing trillions in brand new taxes. Um, and then on foreign policy, I, I think as bad as the domestic policy and economic policy has been, the Biden administration's foreign policy has been even worse. We have not been standing resolutely by our friends and allies, and, and we've been showing weakness and appeasement to our enemies, including Joe Biden giving Putin essentially a multi-billion dollar yes. gift yes. of waiving the sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I, I authored the sanctions on Nord Stream 2. Those sanctions that I wrote that passed with overwhelming bipartisan majorities shut that pipeline down until Joe Biden decided to give a gigantic uh, present to Putin. I think that is a generational geopolitical mistake that that strengthens Russia, it hurts Europe, and it hurts America. And, and, and I think we've seen that pattern, whether it's being weak on Russia, weak on China, uh, all of that is resulting in the American people really losing confidence and saying, this is not what we voted for back in November. No, something's going on. But I also wonder what's happening with Donald Trump. I mean, I did spend time with, with Trump down at uh, Mar-a-Lago when I was over. And uh, yeah, I thought he'd lost weight and he looked pretty fit and sort of up for the fight. But of course, he's been silenced. I mean, it is, it is astonishing. Yep. Yep. It is astonishing that a former president is silenced from these big social media platforms. But that's where we are at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I noticed, you know, normally when Donald Trump endorses somebody and says, I'm backing this candidate, that candidate sails right. through the primary election process and often goes on to win. He's had a very big track record at doing that. Yep. But I noticed in your own state of Texas um, in the last couple of days, a candidate, Susan Wright, that had been endorsed by Trump, didn't win the primary. Is there, is there a feeling that perhaps there are elements now of the Republican grassroots who perhaps think the time for change has come? You know, I don't think we should read too much into that particular election in Texas. That was a special election. It was a very, very small turnout. The candidate who won, Jake Elsey, frankly, ran a very, very good campaign, and, and he ran a very effective campaign, and, and he prevailed. And that, especially in a low turnout election, campaigns matter. matter. And, and he, he ran, I think, a, a more effective campaign. Uh, President Trump continues to have, I think, enormous respect. Um, you are right that, 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 that the big tech billionaires silencing and deplatforming yeah. President Trump, it is, it is an atrocious abuse of power. It is stifling free speech. It's bad for, for our democracies. Whether you agree or disagree with Donald Trump, uh, we should have free speech. And his view is, is certainly one that a great many Americans agree with, myself included. And it, and it ought to be part of the discussion. And, and, and I think we're seeing, we're seeing the Silicon Valley billionaires exercising more and more unchecked power, the arrogance, the hubris. Uh, of the big tech monopolists, I think is profoundly dangerous. And I think big tech censorship is the biggest threat we have to free speech and fair elections uh, in this country. 
Yep, well, the, I, mean, I have to say, Ted, we're having a very similar debate on this side of the pond, too. Not perhaps quite as obvious as it is with Trump being off those airwaves, but we're having it, too. Ted Cruz, thanks very much indeed for joining us here on GB News. Thank you, Nigel. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, yesterday, I did a big piece on the RNLI uh, in which I made very clear that I was a big supporter, a fundraiser, a donor, a believer in them. But I understood the difficulty they were having at the moment. This was taken by some and twisted in the most extraordinary way. Let's have a look at our friends in Momentum, the left wing group on the left of the Labour Party. So Momentum uh, decided there will always be those like Nigel Farage who demonise migrants and asylum seekers, but the RNLI will win showing their love. Well, of course, they're going to be people who didn't like what I had to say yesterday. But I tell you what, I wasn't attacking anybody that works on those boats. I was praising them, but pointing out that in those communities, this is causing a great division and a real problem because just so many people who are giving their own time, not working, but answering the call to go on the lifeboats, to pick up those migrant boats, are saying, hey, can I really afford to go on doing this? And why aren't the border force doing this? Isn't this actually their job? Well, everyone got involved. The prime minister's spokesman got involved and there were some pro-EU groups really pushing hard for online donations. And the RNLI said, yep, we had a really good day yesterday. We raised some money. Well, I hope they did, because some of their longer term donors are also asking questions. If they had a good day yesterday as a result of all the publicity that came from us talking about it here on GB News, that is good. And really, after the ship had sailed and when the debate was virtually over, the leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition Keir Starmer finally made a comment, finally got involved, praising the work of the lifeboats. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Um, I have to say, Sir Keir, if you want to get involved in the national debate, you better start doing it about 18 hours earlier. In a moment, I'll be talking pints with ex-SAS trooper Phil Campion. But first, let's hear what's coming up with Colin Brazier on his show from 8 o'clock. Nigel, on the show tonight, the Ministry of Defence spending splurge. Yesterday, £100 million extra towards the cost of a new Royal Navy flagship. Also, £2.6 billion to nationalise a forge that makes the steel for Britain's nuclear submarines. And today, £250 million towards the cost of a new all-British fighter jet due to come into service from 2040. But will it be as manoeuvrable and as cheap as pilotless drones? We'll discuss... That and more from eight. Tonight, I'm talking pints with big Phil Campion, ex-SAS trooper. Phil, welcome to Talking Pints. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Yeah, there you go. Cheers, mate. Happy days. First today. Mm. Be bad. Go on. Do want Phil, you kind of came into consciousness of people when you wrote a book in 2011... Yeah, Born Fearless. Born Fearless. Yeah. And you sold rather a lot of copies. Done all right, done all right, yeah. And I know as a result of that, you finished up on Sky News' is The Pledge. And yeah, I made, made that documentary in Syria for them, Big yes. War, so I went over, went over there, um, did some groundbreaking stuff in them there, which was, which was, which was nice. It was, it was good, good to do something like that. I think I took it to a place where a lot of journalists wouldn't dare go. You know, I mean, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know don't you? Yeah. <laughs> so Born Fearless, it's, it's actually a great title for a book, but as I understand it, you didn't exactly have the most 
advantageous? No, years? my childhood, you know, I was adopted as a kid uh, into an abusive relationship whereby I suffered at the hands of a, a very violent father, adopted father. Yeah. Uh, that subsequently broke down. My mother turned violent, so she went noisy. I then ended up in a, in a series of situations where my behaviour plummeted. And I, I, was a, I was a handful as a kid. I was an absolute... As they call them, do you know what I mean? But well, I'm sure you're pretty difficult to handle now. I've had my moments, Dad. I've had my moments, you know that. But you know, you know. Anyway, so I ended up in the care system through through a yeah. series of of mismatches of, of where I went, and you know, I was exposed to sexual abuse, um, which was you know used against me as sort of like a lever, a tool. I was told I was nothing. I was told this. I was told that. I was told the other. So. I didn't have the greatest childhood, but I did learn a lot from my childhood, and that's very important, do you know what I mean? So you, you might be having a, a, a rough time, but you can learn a lot when you have a rough time. So, yeah, I, I took from it what I took from it and moved forward with it. And school? School, non-existent, left with a psycho proficiency, took that twice, <laughs> got someone else to help me. <laughs> well, that's something, I mean. <laughs> yeah, so no, no, I didn't do very well at school at all. Uh, I did, however, I went to a public school for a while. They, they identified that I did have quite a high IQ, did one of those little bubble tests, went, got, got sent, paid, state paid for to yeah. a public school, but it was state paid for. The other kids knew that, they're like that, oh, look at the old poor kid, yeah. they nicknamed me Kevin, took the mickey out of me and all that sort of stuff, do you know what I mean? Yeah, torrid year I had there. But, you know, I've been invited back there since, and I will go up there hopefully this year and see them and you know yeah i don't know grudges like that and the army say so the army the army was to make I mean, it to I mean, me was that what you always wanted to do no no not really i wanted to play football for england but i was rubbish <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of kids out yeah. there now want to play football for england i bet there is yeah. the last few well there years. is a substitute for england i'm telling you, telling you it wins things as well would you fancy taking one of those penalties at wembley the other night i'll take one yeah absolutely i'll just do that for one i'd have that yeah all day yeah so the royal hampshire regiment it was the royal hampshire regiment i went yeah passed me training best improved recruit i found out later that means he was an idiot but we got him over the line yeah yeah um had a great and, time there and a wonderful regiment wonderful regiment great Abol history abolished, abolished by john abolished major. by john major yeah at the, at the time i'd have liked to have got hold of the fleshy part of his neck and <laughs> give him a talking to night do you know what i mean but it never <laughs> happened and you know this is one of the things that, that advocates me to talk about the, the british army because we dealt with that yeah. you know it was a tough time we dealt with it and i think that's one of the one of the key things that the british army does you can throw at them whatever you like but they'll deal with it yeah. They might and go slightly round, round, round the sun to get the moon sometimes, but they will deal with it and they will record, do the best they can. I mean, then you did some amazing things because you did the Royal Marine. I did, I did my well, arms commander course, I did P Company, and then ultimately I did selection in for the, special in forces. The, in the parachute regiment. Yeah, 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 that's right. So P Company for the parachute regiment. Yep. So I had me red lid, I had me green lid. Yep. And then I went away and did my special forces stuff. Passed first time, wasn't a retread. Um, yeah. And, you know, did, did a bit of time there. I won't lie to you, got out under a bit of a cloud, but, you know, there you go. But the SAS, I mean, it's still got this extraordinary mythology uh, that, 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 that kind of surrounds it. What sort of men succeed in the SAS? It's a mishmash of all types of blokes. But good blokes, ultimately. Good blokes. You know, you don't have to be the fastest in the pack. You don't have to be the racing snake. You don't have to be the strongest, the biggest, the artist. But it's full of decent blokes. It really is. But you've got to be fit. You've got to be fit, yeah, but you don't have to, This is a mistake a lot of young lads make who are going for it. They overtrain, they go nuts, they go mad, they're like, ah, you're like, no, 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 calm down a bit, and they'll, they'll thrash you, believe me, do you know what I mean? So, yeah. But it isn't, it isn't, it isn't just physical fitness. It's not just physical it's fitness, there's fitness. a lot of mental fitness. Yeah. Um, 
and you know mental resilience as well you know actually wanting to be there that's a very important thing that people miss about the regiment it's a volunteer organization nobody tells me you know if you ever you hear it in the pub sometimes yeah so and so was told he's going to go to the sas because he's that yeah. good no that don't happen that's a myth so we'll bust that on your show first here all right okay that never happens yeah. you volunteer you're a volunteer to go to the regiment and, and that's the way it is um and you know they have a good look at you and if you pass their selection you're in you go on probation for a bit and then you, you move on through, through the ranks and, and up and do what you've got to do. And do you think the SAS is, is as good as the reputation that it has? I, I think it's better than the reputation it has. I think it's, it's undoubtedly, you know, the best special forces in the world as far as I'm concerned and you'll never get any other, any other side of the coin <laughs> off me, I'm telling you. All right? Well, the Americans might not agree. No, they, they? Can, they can disagree, they can do what they like, but, you know, at the end of the day, their, their special forces are modelled on ours, not ours on theirs. Yeah, yeah. OK? We, we're, the, we're the world leaders in that sort of thing and we have been for a very long time. So in a sense, you know, joining the army clearly changed your life. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, led you on to business and, and yeah. Somali pirates. Yeah, you, you know, look, look, I got out of the regiment. So I PVR'd, I bought my way out of the regiment. I'd, I'd come back from Sierra Leone. We'd done a few bits and pieces. Um, my behaviour dipped. I had a couple of issues. A couple of issues. We'll, 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 leave, we'll park it there for now, another yeah. day. Yeah. But, you know, I, I got out. I bought my way out. And it was, it was in September of 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. And obviously the planes went cruising in, and I thought, yeah, there's some money to be made here. So I sort of like disappeared off to Pakistan, done me bits and pieces, ended up working in Afghanistan. I think I, think I got to the embassy before they did, to be honest. Um, yeah, it was, it was, and then it just became an absolute mad rush of, of this private military contracting that you've seen all about Afghanistan, yes. Iraq. And it's big money. It, in the day it was big money. The lads are going out there for peanuts now, and it really breaks me because they're taking some real risks. They're getting out of sturdy careers in the British military, yeah. and they're dumping themselves over there, do you know? I mean, and he, oh, we're not, yeah, and you know, when you look at Afghanistan now, and there's this big pullout, the Taliban are advancing, and there's guys out there still working for 125 pound a day. Wow, that's insane. Yeah, I could get that on Brown's nightclub. So you would, so you you were making some, some decent. Oh, dough, I've, I've done a little bit of dough. Yeah, we've done all right. Um, no, it looks no, like again. you did. It looks like you yeah, did. Yeah, we done okay. Like um, we were, I wasn't sensible with it, Nigel. <laughs> no, well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't expect you to <laughs> be. <laughs> you know. <laughs> So was that like almost being a mercenary, or how would you describe what I you were doing? I prefer to call it contracting. A mercenary, you know, takes, takes up arms and actively involves in things like coups and stuff like that. We weren't. We were always working on, on jobs that were, were aiding the, the, the infrastructure of the place or whatever. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I worked for the European Commission for quite a long, a long period of time. I worked for the United Nations. Gosh, they'd never have employed me, would they? <laughs> <laughs> they missed a trick there, I Nigel. Know. They missed a trick. Yeah, so, yeah, so... It, 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 all the jobs I did basically were, were geared up to helping with infrastructure, training people, and we were taking on the stuff that really the armed forces couldn't cope with. Really. Or, or not, they couldn't cope with, they could have done it standing on the reds, but the stuff that they just didn't have the manpower to do, do you know what I mean? They couldn't, yeah. you know, the European Commission's embassy didn't have a CP team, we took that responsibility on. We trained all their guards. You know, Motorola didn't have CP teams when I worked for them, so, yeah. And, and now you're trying to inspire kids. Now, right, so my very first interview in the army was in 1987 with a guy called Major Finclair, and he asked me what I wanted out life and I said to him sir I said I want a great time in the army I want I want to do some really cool stuff and when I get out of the military I want to help other people who come from a similar background to myself i.e from the children's homes and stuff and I want to help them have a great time I've expanded that slightly I want every kid to have the, an opportunity in life to go and do cool stuff and and, and be part of society and, and and have a great life okay and, and I'm now the head ambassador for the army cadet force yep it's the jewel in my crown Kids have had a tough time. Kids are having a, an extremely tough time. Oh. You know, COVID's beat them up. Can't go to school, you can't know, see yeah, their mates. Yeah, yeah. So they've had a really tough time. So organisations, you know, like... like oh, but it's, it's, it's an arm... It's not the army. No, it's not. The, the 
Army Cadet Force is about delivering youth into adulthood with some skill sets that they don't learn at school. If then one decides he wants to join the Army, well, fair play to him. Well done. Great career waiting for you, son. But if he doesn't, or she doesn't, off you go. But you, you're now a first aider. You've now got some leadership skills. You've now. And if I was an employer in Civvy Street and somebody said, well, oh, he's got a gold DV, or he's been in the Army Cadets, yeah. or he made the rank of Sergeant Major, oh, we've got, got someone special here. Do you know what I mean? You might have six... GCSEs so, or so was recruitment for cadets pre-pandemic? I mean, how was that going? Are, are... It, was, it was. I think it's going okay, and, and 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 they kept the flame alive. More importantly, through the pandemic, yeah. we did a lot of stuff online. We did a lot of Zoom stuff. Yeah. You know, wherever we could, we made sure that we didn't lose them because it was so easy to lose people during yeah. the pandemic, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And all right, I know, and I know that they're watching me now, and I know there was people on them Zoom calls in their underpants with their uniform on. There was a newsreader from a rival TV organisation was caught with a suit. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it must be quite difficult. I mean, let's, let's say, you know, Phil, I come to you, I'm 18, I've done five years in the Army Cadets, yep. I'm thinking about joining the Army, I see declining Army numbers, yep. I see a government, who, I had Bob Stewart, Colonel Bob Stewart here last yep, night, yep. You know, who, who is loyal to the Tory tribe, but you can tell, you know, that frankly, he thinks Boris and co don't really care very much about this stuff. I mean... Quite difficult to, to, to tell an 18-year-old now that it's a good thing to go in the army. See beyond, see beyond what, see, see beyond that sort of like massive picture, and see what you're going to get out of it. You're going to get out of it skills for life. You're going to get offered a job for 22 years. You know, you're going to be you're going to be working with an organisation which is the best at what it does in the world. All right, you're going to represent your country. All right, and okay, you might get thrown a few lemons by those upstairs. That, that, that's that's inevitably going to happen. But I know for a fact that the, that the armed forces pull it out of the bag every time they're asked, and whether they're helping with the pandemic, uh, or whether they're, 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 they're trotting around doing their bits and pieces elsewhere in the world, they give a hundred percent commitment. And you know, it, it's for me. I, I, I don't sort of like. I'm not the recruitment guy for the British Army, do you know what I mean? But I think they're coming on leaps and bounds. You know, the latest recruitment campaign is, is fail, learn. And, and crack on, that sort of stuff. Yeah. They're recognising more and more now mental health. You know, that's been taken seriously. On. They used to say, be the best. Join they're the still going to be the best. They're be still the going to be the best. But what and, I say and, is now, don't be afraid of failure. Don't be afraid to learn and, by and, your mistakes. And the new adverts. I mean, they, they, and the British Army's gone woke, hasn't it? No, I don't think they've gone woke at all. I think, look, look they're not appealing to me. They're not appealing to you. But no. they are appealing to the youth of the day. And the youth of the day are different to me and you, Nigel. They well, are completely well, no, no, different. That's right? a fair point. You and probably, you can't argue with no, the figures. You've probably got me on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I probably have. OK. And what about politics and current affairs? Because, as I say, this book, this book, Born Fearless, yep. put you in a different place. And suddenly people wanted to hear, you know, you, and you appeared on current affairs On the pledge, yeah, 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 and, yeah the pledge in particular. Like this. So how do you see British politics today? How do you see the Labour I Party? I see it extremely difficult, you know. I wouldn't say, you know, when I was on the pledge, they, they cast me sort of like on the right-hand side of Hitler. They really did, they, you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, I've got, I've got mixed-race grandkids. In the army, you don't see skin colour, no. you see another soldier, yeah. you, you grade him by his abilities. In the peacock boxing, peacock boxing club, you grade somebody by his boxing ability. You don't go, oh, you're going to go and fight this colour lad or that colour yeah. lad. You go, you're going to be fighting that lad there, you're going to be training with that lad there. Okay, so I don't, I don't get this whole racist thing, really, in, in that respect, you know what I mean? But I see it happening. I see it happening, and I can't abide it. So, you know... Politics where we are, if you lean too far left, yeah. it gets all too fuzzy and mushed up and too nicey-nicey. If you go too far right, it gets too kicked to death and horrible. Striking a, a balance in the middle is an extremely difficult thing to mm. do, Nigel, as, as, as you will realise. Do you know what I mean? And sometimes, if you get pinned with a set of colours, you can't do right for doing wrong. 
And that's an annoying thing, do you know what I mean? Because, you know, you just typecast straight away, boom, that's him. No, no it's not me, do you know what I mean? Well, I know all about Absolutely. that. Yeah. I know all about that. <laughs> because one of the subjects, Phil, that I've been talking about for the last year and trying to raise the issue and make people understand what's going on is the dinghies, the ribs. Coming across the English no, no, Channel. I did it, didn't I? I went across yeah. there. I you know, you've all yeah. seen that piece. I, I went across there. And what happened? What happened? Channel 4 got hold of it. They rubbished me for it. They absolutely rubbished me for it. They took yeah. me through the thing. You know, that thing went to court. And when it went to court, it was found that, it was found that there was no foul play. And it, did I get an apology from Channel 4? No. Did I, hell? No. What a bunch of mugs they are down there. They really, they really took... Mugs is a very nice word. Yeah, no, but we are all the water shed. Probably I mean... You know, I see what's happening in the channel as a humiliation for this country. I see it as a huge cost for this country. How would you stop it? It needs to be policed properly. You know, it needs. It needs we're not going to rely on the French Navy to do no. this, are we? But no. we've got our own coast guards. We've got our own. We've got our own. And, 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 and as you know, it's been just in the paper with the RNLI. You know, if they have to go out there and save life. That's what they have to do. Do you know what I mean? I know. But they're not policing it. We, we need our coast guard. We need our border force. They need to police it. And I, I, I strongly believe in that because. You know, the are and not policemen. They're out there saving lives. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's, yes, that's, that's and, but I'm, unfortunately, it's taking, it's taking up a lot of their time and resource. It hey, is. Big Phil, it thanks is. for joining us, mate. Yeah, no, great stuff. Brilliant. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you very much. So now we come to that part of the show, Barrage the Farage, where you send in your questions and I don't get any pre-sight of them. At some point, I'm going to fall flat on my face. It is Thursday, so it's the last one I'm doing this week. Let's see how we go. Roe asks, being pinged by the app isn't actually in the law. The law states track and trace, not the app. So why did Boris create rules for something that isn't law. Don't ask me. I don't know why Boris does many of the things that he does, and I'm not sure he does. Look, you know, we did get an argument earlier on this show. We did get an argument on from a, from a virologist who suggests that maybe the pinging has stopped further spread. Uh, maybe it did. But it is a bit of a farce, isn't it, that we're going to wake up on the 16th of August and be told it doesn't matter anymore. You're right, it's not the law. You don't have to have that app. I personally have never chosen to put that app on my phone. That is my choice. John says, you talk about the cost to families. What about industry? We have to be competitive. You're quite right. I did not get onto industry today. And the truth of it is that... Green taxes, expensive energy has closed down both the aluminium smelters that were in this country, has closed down many of our chemical factories, much of our refinery, much of our cement business. And all those businesses have gone off to India, to China, where they're doing the same work, but actually with even bigger CO2 outputs and many of the goods being shipped back here. Look, I'm an environmentalist. I have been all my life. I'm just not a CO2 obsessive, and I think we have to think very, very carefully how we go from here. Last one. Charles says, if you could redo your political career, what would you do differently? Stay in business and make a lot of money. No, I don't regret what I did. I believed in it, and I did it. So, I want to say thank you to everybody. It's been a great week. I want to thank all of those that have been in touch with me via email, sending me messages, sending me in stories. It's been terrific. See you back here on Monday.